Christianity viewed in Britain today? It's kind of a complex picture, I would suggest. I was hearing uh, only this morning as I was shaving that uh, when people are surveyed in Britain and they ask, well, uh, even if you're not practicing it, what religion would you say you were? And 70% of those polled said that they were Christian in Britain. So you've still got this large percentage that even though they don't practice it or go to it, uh, they would sort of want to nominate that they're Christian. Although the largest growing uh, religious group in Britain today is um, the uh, not religious group. They wouldn't want to ascribe any sort of uh, religious framework to what they think. I mean, big shifts have happened, haven't they, in the last 60 years in British attitudes. There was a time when people would have viewed Britain as a Christian country with Christian values, and this has clearly changed. Britain is now a multicultural society where Christians actually, those who really practice it, are viewed really as a minority. And there would have been a period of time where it would have been a minority that people would have smiled upon, uh, that Christians were harmless, uh, irrelevant, uh, made for good telly, uh, in people like the Vicar of Dibley and so forth. But there has been a further shift in thinking. As some writers and lecturers and scientists have wanted to say that Christianity is actually harmful, that it's dangerous to society. The new atheist writers like um, Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett or Richard uh, Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens have have all written bestsellers uh, attacking religion in general and Christianity in particular as dangerous. Uh, Christopher Hitchens' book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, gives you a pretty fairly good feel for the book. Richard Dawkins, who wrote The Selfish Gene and The God Delusion, has stated that he believes that parents who teach their children Christianity are engaging in a form of child abuse. Now that's strong stuff, isn't it? So we're seeing this sort of uh, intelligentsia trying to just warn the great British public of the harm of Christianity. We're seeing legal actions being raised against street preachers and people offering to pray for others in their work context. We're seeing increasing legislation that is being passed that seems to put sexual rights above religious rights of freedom of conscience. Well, that's in a general picture. I wonder, how how is it that um, people treat you when they discover that you're a Christian here in Edinburgh? How do people treat you? Well, in my experience, when people find out that I'm a church pastor, it tends to make them go kind of quiet. Oh. They look stunned. They quickly change topic. And uh, if we're in a gathering lots of people, they sort of make their ways to other conversations. Now, it could be just that I'm an unpleasant person to be around. It could be that. Maybe I should use more antiperspirant. I don't know. But that's the reaction I get. So how should we respond to that? Let me flip it around. How should we view society and those in authority when we experience such cold and negative reactions? How should we respond when 
we meet people who are engaging in lifestyles that are definitely non-Christian and they want to put that in our face. How should we deal with civic matters where the consensus is no longer to maintain Christian standards? How should we respond to our society? Well, please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, you'll find that on page 1199 in these church Bibles. And if you're visiting, we've been working through this book of Titus. So that's why we're here today in Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 8. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us graciously, generously, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. This is God's word. So as we come to the end of this series in the book of Titus, it's become clear that the Apostle Paul has laid out his stall in the very first verse. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. That's what this book has been about. It's been about the knowledge of truth, of the truth that leads to godliness. Trusting gospel truth leads to a godly life. That's the message of this book. Trusting gospel truth leads to a godly life. Believing healthy, sound doctrine leads to a transformed life of doing what is good. What we think, what we believe is all important. It will shape who we are and what we become. And each chapter really deals with this theme in in different contexts. In chapter 1, godliness in the church. In chapter 2, godliness in the home, and in chapter 3, godliness within society. That's what this book is about. So let's think about godliness um, in 
society. I've got three points for you. I'm a preacher. I've got three points, all beginning with R. There's a reminder in verses 1 and 2 to be conscientious and considerate citizens. This has been part of the apostles' teaching to these young Christians in Crete. He had taught them about this, the need that they should be conscientious and, and, and considerate citizens. And he urges Titus, remind them, remind them of this teaching. Now do you remember the less than flattering description of the Cretan national characteristics? It's, it's there in chapter 1 and verse 12. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. Uh, sometimes we need someone to come alongside us and remind us of things that we've been taught long before. We are prone to forget. We need reminders. Uh, we absorb the cultural values of our society around us and we need people to say, come on, no, this is what it means to live a godly life. And, and I guess that we need that too as we think about our lives with regard to civic society. Verse 1. Be submissive. Be subject to rulers and authorities by being ready to do whatever is good. Be obedient to authorities. So if you're a Christian here today and you're thinking, well, should I obey the rules of the road? Should I obey the rules of, 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 of uh, society? Should I pay attention to policemen, to uh, the judgments of politicians and law courts? The answer is what? Yes. Yes. Be submissive, it says. By being obedient, be, be ready to do whatever is good. Well, you may say to me, well, uh, Paul, um, I have a few buts. I want, to, I want to give. Well, that's very interesting. But let's just remember that the Apostle Paul is writing at a time of the Caesars. This was not a democratic government. He was writing at the time of occupational armies. He was writing at the time of Colosseums. And still he writes, be submissive to authorities. Be obedient. Be ready to do whatever is good. We are called to be conscientious citizens if we're Christians. We're called to engage positively and helpfully towards those in city chambers here in Edinburgh, to, to local authorities, to the Scottish Parliament, to the British government. And not only with those in authority, but also to everyone that we meet in our community. That's what verse 2 goes on to say. And uh, in the original language, it becomes even clearer that there are two negatives and two positives. The two negatives, uh, not to be offensive, slandering people, and not to be argumentative, but instead to be peaceable. Those are the negatives. Don't be offensive, don't be argumentative. And positively, we should be considerate. And show true humility towards all people. 
Now, there's plenty of satirical shows on the telly that are great fun, but actually, if we ape their mockery of those in authority, if we ape their way that they cut everyone down to size, that would not be a good thing, would it? If we are seeking to be godly Christians, we are to show true humility towards all people. Now, is that how we relate? to people as we head out of our doors each day? Is that how we relate to other car drivers as we drive our cars? Uh, something strange happens when you people get in their cars. It's their private space. It extends beyond the borders of their car. And, and, and suddenly, suddenly, people can behave quite irrationally. I've noticed there's a little bit of tension between cyclists and, and drivers. And being both a cyclist and a driver, I don't get this. But... If you're driving, how do you treat cyclists? If you're a cyclist, how do you treat the drivers? Are we engaging those that we meet with gentleness, with graciousness, with consideration? And if the Christians in Crete need the reminder, I guess we, did, we do too. I, I think a, a government or a city chambers should be delighted to deal with Christians because of the godly way that we engage with them. See, our Christian faith is a reason for positive engagement with our society with regard to politics and government, with regard to law and police, law courts, as neighbors, as taxpayers. With regard to arts and sports, we should be conscientious and considerate citizens. Why? You're probably sitting there going, why? Why should I be? Give me some good reasons, Paul. Well, glad you should ask. The NIV doesn't really help us here because it misses out a crucial little word, uh, which um, is the word when translated that says for in verse 3. Verses 3 to 7 gives us the reason for... uh, such godly behavior. There are two things that we need to remember. Firstly, in verse 3, remember we were once antisocial. That's the description that we get here. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated And hating one another. It is a strong description, isn't it? And it's all the more astonishing when you find out that Paul was a deeply religious person before he became a Christian. And he's including himself. At one time, we too. We, Paul and Titus. We. If you'd met Paul before he became a Christian, I think you'd be very impressed with him by this fine, upstanding religious leader of the Jews. But Paul says, as he looks back on his life before he became a Christian, he says this, I was foolish. I was disobedient. I was deceived. I was enslaved. I lived in malice and hatred. That was the perspective on his life before he became a Christian. And let me be provocative Uh, this morning, suggest to you that this is God's assessment of every non-Christian. Let's have a look at that list again. At one time, we too were foolish. Now let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that all non-Christians are stupid. 
That would obviously be wrong. Paul himself had a great intellect before he became a Christian. He means that with regard to knowing God, we were all without spiritual understanding. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They were once foolish to the things of God. Disobedient. And this means primarily disobedient towards God. People can be law-abiding citizens, but actually be disobeying God's good standards for our lives. The truth is that most make up their own rules and run their own lives without regard to God at all. Disobedience is the judgment of Scripture. Deceived, it goes on. That, that we live life oblivious to the real meaning and purpose of life, that which is, which is to know God and to live for His glory, that we're deceived and we don't live like that. We're sucked in by society and the media around us that tells us that uh, we can't really know anything about God, even if He exists. Forget about Christianity, it's all irrelevant. Church is meaningless, it's just for children and inadequate people. And the Bible is clear that the devil is behind such thinking. The, the world is full of ways that people invest their lives in fantasy and in entertainment and in strange philosophies rather than the truth of the Bible. And the judgment of God is deceived and enslaved. It goes on by all kinds of passions and pleasures. If we look honestly at a society, we see that it is addicted to gaining as much pleasure as it possibly can. People think they can handle it, but statistics show a different story that we can't. People enslaved to gambling, to shopping, to alcohol, to drugs, to sex, and to all the broken relationships that that leaves behind. We live in malice, the Bible says, and envy, being hated and hating one another. Now this may seem a bit strong, but if you were to buy a Sunday newspaper on the way home, just go through each article and consider, is that not exactly what the newspaper is full of today? Malice, envy, being hated, and hating one another with some handy recipes as well. That's a Sunday newspaper. Watch an episode of Coronation Street or EastEnders. This is the, these are the taglines. Watch 10 minutes of the Jeremy Kyle show if you need any further persuasion. This is a description of the Britain that we live in. Now thankfully it's not the total story. But it, it, it would be hard to deny that these things are also true. It's a very unattractive picture, isn't it? The Bible holds up to the world. It's an ugly picture, something we don't want to recognize even for ourselves. But you know, we have to say it's even more repulsive to God. These are the sort of things that God has to judge. Whether we see ourselves like this or not, this is how God sees us. The Bible says it is, a, it is a perfect description of what 
we are like. The seeds of every one of these things are in each one of our hearts. And given the right circumstances, we would act them out. Or what would you expect the holy God to do who hates all these things that are described here? What would you expect such a holy God to do? My natural expectation would be that he would wipe, wipe us all out. And that's what's so amazing about verse 4. Paul tells Titus to remember not only what they were like, but what God had done for them, for the Christians in Crete. Remember, he says, not only um, that we were antisocial, but remember what God has done. God has saved us and changed us. Verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. What an amazing God. Instead of God appearing as a judge, verse 4, he appears in kindness and love as our Savior in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we encourage people to come and do like the Christianity Explored course, to, to read a Gospel of Mark, to look at Jesus. Because we're saying if you look at him, you will actually come to know the real living God. Now why did God appear in kindness and love? Did he do it because we're such super people? Well, clearly not from verse 3. Verse 5 goes on, he says, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Uh, they, like us, deserve nothing but the judgment of God, but instead God had shown mercy. And not only had God saved them, but he had changed them. That's what the language of verse 5 is saying. It's another way of describing salvation. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not just uh, an ancient letter of the first century that is uh, fascinating to study and see what lessons we can learn, just like you would study um, ancient Greek culture or something like that to learn an education system. No, this, this, this is the point where the truth of God's word becomes profoundly experiential and relevant to today. What God did at Pentecost in pouring out his spirit, what God has been doing ever since is that he has been changing and transforming people's lives. He's been putting his Holy Spirit into people's lives and make them brand new on the inside. It's profoundly experiential, the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. There was a time when we were spiritually dead because of our sin, but God made us alive. That's what the Spirit does when he comes into a life. Our sin corrupts us. It defiles us. But this new life he gives, it washes us clean from the inside. He, the language of a bath. He scrubbed us clean, drenching us with his Holy Spirit to become uh, worthy heirs of his kingdom. We were dirty with sin, but God has made us clean and acceptable before him. That's the wonderful description of, of a born-again Christian. It's a phrase we don't hear too much these days. It's a phrase that got debased, I guess, a lot. But it's a biblical phrase, a born-again Christian. 
It turns people's perceptions upside down. I think still many in society, if you say you're a Christian or even worse, a born-again Christian, then they think you're just claiming to be morally superior. That you're better at getting your life together. Well, that's not what this is about, is it? Quite clearly. A born-again Christian is not an arrogant statement of how good we are. It is a stunning admission of how enslaved and foolish we once were. And how miraculously and undeservingly God has changed us. And my question to you, and if I had time, I'd go around each one of you, is, is, is it true of you? Have you experienced this? Have you experienced this new birth? Have you experienced this renewal by God's Holy Spirit? New Testament Christianity is about total transformation of sinful people through the merciful power of God. And, it, and, and one of the great marks of a born-again Christian should be this, humility. True humility towards all people. Before God's grace, what were we, what were we like? We were like verse 3. We were like everybody else. That's how we all start, apart from God's grace. And we should never really be the sort of moral policemen who look out at society and sneer down our noses at non-Christian behavior and morality, because apart from grace, would we be any different? We would not. That non-Christians act like non-Christians shouldn't be surprising. People don't uh, believe God, trust his word. It is totally uh, unremarkable that they should live contrary to God and contrary to his words. But here's the wonderful thing. Because salvation is all down to the mercy and the grace of God, then there's hope for every person. There is none too bad that God's grace and mercy cannot change and transform them. There is nothing that we have done in the past that cannot be forgiven. We may feel defiled and corrupted by the choices that we've made. But here's the wonderful truth. When God's spirit comes inside, he washes us clean. He renews us. As, as Martin dared to believe, no condemnation. Not one drop. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that not what people long for? Uh, in America, they had this show, The Extreme Makeover. I'm sure there's a British equivalent. And uh, people go on there starting looking really ugly. I don't know who determines what's ugly, but look at, look at, they feel they're looking really ugly anyway. They feel they're looking really ugly. And they go to the dentist and they get extreme makeover and uh, he puts crowns or veneers and, and bleaches them with an inch of their life to make them look impossibly white so they look completely unnatural. And then they start working on the body. They suck fat out. They pump fat in other places. They, they sculpt the body. And then they give you a hairdo and makeup and outfits. And, and, and you know, this dowdy person walks in and out walks somebody who could be in a Hollywood movie. And, and, and this extreme makeover. But it, it taps into something that we are longing to be different people. We're longing to be changed. But it's pathetic. The world can, that's all the best the world can offer. 
And the truth is, even the, bla- the best plastic surgery will sag, will unravel, will get fat. The best enhanced body will get disease and it will die. And that's it. And you'll take your false teeth to the grave with you. Now this is what God offers. It is something so much better than that. He offers us to make us brand new on the inside. To, to, to give us the washing of rebirth. Renewal by the Holy Spirit. He will change us from the inside out. He will forgive our sins. He will make us clean. He will make us acceptable to Him, right with Him, friends with Him, adopted into His family. He will change us incrementally by His Spirit so that we become more loving, more considerate, more obedient, more ready to do what is good. And He will make us heirs of eternal life. Look at verse 7. The best these makeover shows can give you a temporary body. Look at verse 7. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is what God offers through the Lord Jesus Christ by his amazing grace. This is all part of God's rescue. A result of his salvation. The hope of eternal life. A new and transformed glorious body like his resurrection body for all eternity in a world without suffering and pain and loss. That's born again Christianity. That's the real thing. And, and this morning, really, we, 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 we've seen an example of this already, haven't we? We've had Martin Smith come up here and share his story. Uh, a story, really, of someone who a time was not a Christian and he'd become born again was that not clear and evident to you as he gave his testimony this morning he has been saved by God's mercy in his life and what mercy for years having heard it and done nothing about it what mercy God has shown to Martin and um, that's why he wants to be baptized today uh, there's nothing magical about baptism. Um, the main change that's going to happen here to Martin is that he's going to get really wet. But what he's doing is showing us outwardly what has happened on the inside. That he has experienced the washing of rebirth and he's been renewed by God's Spirit. And as he goes under the water, this symbolizes that his old life without Jesus is dead and buried. And as he, as he rises up out of the water, this new life is a symbol of his new life with Jesus has begun. And so Paul says to Titus, Would you remind the Christians to be conscientious and considerate citizens? Remember that we, we were once antisocial. Remember that God saved us. And changed us. And so resolved to live a saved life of doing what is good. Verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. If we have trusted in God and his gospel 
then this new saved life that is full of hope of eternal life will express itself in careful devotion to doing what is good. To meet someone who claims to be a Christian, but in whom there's no evidence of godliness, means one of two things. Either they have not properly understood the healthy doctrine of the gospel, or secondly, they've not been born again by God's Holy Spirit. Because when God's Spirit comes in, this is what happens. This is the change that takes place. Martin will not, and is not, a perfect person. No Christian here is a perfect person. We are sinners daily requiring the grace of God. But the Holy Spirit is changing us. Do you know, this is the best way to defend Christianity here in Edinburgh and in Britain. The best way that we can commend the gospel to an unbelieving world, as 1 Peter 2 says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Let's pray, Shane.